If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the wake of the Second World War, Germany was a country on the brink of collapse. Despite the war's end, the years to follow were turbulent, as Germans lived through the division of East and West, all while reckoning with their recent past. And these challenges were reflected in the lives of those incarcerated in Germany's prisons. That's what Sarah Colvin argues in her recent book, Shadowland. Eleanor Evans spoke to her to find out more about how the differing regimes of East and West Germany treated their prisoners. We're talking about your book, Shadowland, the story of Germany told by its prisoners. Now, I wanted to start by hearing from you on what brought you to write this history. Well, I'd previously done a project about German terrorists, um, which took me to German terrorists in prison, who got lots of attention and kind of got visited by Jean-Paul Sartre and had, you know, letters written about them by Amnesty. And when I finished that project and written the book, I started wondering what's it like to be a regular prisoner? Um, What happens to the other people, the little people in prison? So this book is very much the kind of worm's eye perspective. This is the little people. Um, So, you know, I give some attention to the terrorists in the 1970s because, you know, they're a big presence in the prisons, but mainly it is about uh, the regular people, the people who aren't high profile murderers, uh, who aren't famous terrorists. Um, And what I became interested in is how that also gives then a perspective on Germany and on the nation. Because while the terrorists have a very clear idea, theoretical idea of what they think Germany is, the regular prisoners, their first response when they get into prison is so often, this is not the country I thought it was. This is not the Germany I thought I lived in. Um, And then after that, there's a response which is what is in here is an echo of the structures and values or even an intensified version of the structures and values of life outside. And actually you find really often that people who've been in prison or people who've worked in prison call it a microcosm. 
It's a microcosmic version of society outside. And so that made me think this has something to tell us. Um, this has something to tell me about the society I live in. So that was what started it. I see. And and the society you're looking at, the period you're looking at, it spans from post-war Germany to the, the present day. And can you broadly give us a sense of what that period looked like, um, how that microcosm you could, you could be seen in action? Yes, sure. So I kind of track the events like um, the post-war period, 1968, then into the 80s and, and at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, you have reunification in Germany. And things kind of, there's a visible shape, let's say, through the period. So in the 1950s and 1960s, the big question on everyone's mind is, have we changed? Are we different from that Nazi country that went before? And prisons are of interest because one of the big questions is, you know, there were all these people who said they didn't know what happened. Are they still saying they don't know what's happening behind prison walls? Is it possible still not to know? So in the 70s and 80s in particular, you get journalists going into prisons and interviewing prisoners. You get academics going in um, and collecting prison writing. Famous writers start writing letters to people in prisons and publishers, interestingly, want to publish this. There are some quite major publishers who then bring that stuff into the public sphere and people want to read it. And then I think this is kind of the post-68 mood. So there's a sense that, a sort of hope, that we can change society. We can have a society that's better, that's more inclusive. And the experience of people in prison has something to tell us that we need to hear. And people in prison start self-organising and writing because they're participating. They also believe that they can be part of that democratic debate around change. And that dies down again in the 1990s. So, you know, in 1987, Margaret Thatcher told the UK that there was no such thing as society. Um, and there were reverberations of that in Germany as well. And people in prison stop writing so much about changing society and start writing much more about changing themselves, kind of focus on self-help. And at the same time, society loses interest a bit in reading about their experience and publishers very visibly lose interest in publishing it. And that's West Germany. East Germany is different, but maybe we can, we can talk about that separately. Yes, of course. And, and I'd very much like to get into those, um, that journey of reform later on as well. But perhaps, um, we can go to that point you mentioned about journalists talking to prisoners and academics, uh, sourcing a lot of testimony that there, there are significant challenges, aren't there, of sourcing prisoner testimony throughout this period. Could you perhaps introduce us to a few of those issues? Sure. Yes. So for me, the thing I had to keep in mind was that this is a very vulnerable population. We, we really like to think of prisoners as dangerous, um, but in fact, people in prison are extremely vulnerable. Some of them are dangerous, of course, but all of them are vulnerable. And I didn't want to get into the business of exposing people or leading them to expose themselves. So what I decided to do was work with material that was already in the public sphere. So I did participate in projects in prisons and I went into prisons and spoke with people in prison and I worked with the National Criminal Justice Arts Alliance, which is a wonderful organisation that I still work with. But all of that was more of a reality check um, on my reading. I wasn't collecting information and I didn't use that material. I used what was already out there. And what surprised me was how much 
was already out there. There is a lot of material in the public sphere and nobody's looking at it. So, you know, people say that prison is the invisible institution and that is invisible material. Um, So it it was there to be had and I collected it, a lot of it. (laughs) And broadly then, did did you come across any sort of broader reasons why people were recording or writing from prisons and how this sort of evolved in the period that you look at? Yes, so there are recurring themes. Um, One theme that comes up over and over again is that as a person in prison, you write to survive um, and you write to resist because this is a system that dehumanises you and makes you a number. And when I write down my experience, I make myself a human being again. So that's very important. And another thing that's important, which interested me and came up in the conversations I had with people in prison as well, is that writing is an alternative to violence. So I can smash up my cell when I feel crazy or I can sit down and write. One is an alternative to the other. I thought that was really interesting. So if we turn to the... um prisons a little more than uh, you mentioned that they're often coming from very vulnerable situations there's um, a lot of aspects of social inequality and very very difficult challenges could we pick up on a on a few stories and and and, and how this is impacting their writing their experiences from prison yeah so it's still the case now that that social inequality affects who goes to prison you know that that hasn't changed but you're talking about a very particular situation in, in a defeated post-war Germany initially, you know, post-1945, and you've got soldiers returning from the war and they have mental impairments and physical impairments and they often can't find work. And people have to eat. You know, if you can't buy food, if you can't grow enough food, you will steal it. Um, and people need shelter. And if you can't find shelter where you are, you'll move around. And at this time, vagrancy... Um, was a crime in Germany. So it was quite easy to build up a criminal record, um, and people did. And what's striking and difficult at the time is how much children are involved in that. So if you imagine Germany after the war, complete chaos, social meltdown. So in the UK, where children have been evacuated, there are organised systems for bringing them home again afterwards. In Germany, Hitler had an evacuation scheme as well. Children were evacuated. But afterwards, there was no organised system for bringing them home. So they had to wander home. They had to find their way home. Lots of the stories that people in prison after the war tell are about histories like that, about trying to get home, coming home, finding your mum is married to someone else who maybe already has a lot of children. There's no space for you. You end up a vagrant. You end up out there and stealing. And then there are the children who never find their parents, who've been orphaned, the children who got lost when people were getting on trains, running away as fast as they could from the soldiers coming in from the east. Um, And those children came to be called wolf children. And they were called wolf children because they lived in packs um, to keep themselves safe. They robbed villages. They tell stories like, you know, capturing young women and selling them to Russian soldiers for food. Um, So criminal stories, stories about criminal acts, but criminal acts that are being committed so that people can survive. Um, Yeah, and then you have the economic miracle in the 1960s in Germany. You know, 
very famous idea, but one that a lot of people didn't get to participate in. So if you'd been in prison, if you had a criminal record, you weren't going to get work. You weren't going to be part of the economic um, miracle. Stories of really extreme poverty, people barely getting by, and sometimes almost preferring to go back into prison um, because at least you're going to eat there, at least you're going to have shelter there. And again, East German is a different story. Before we we do go into that, I did want to ask as well that because there's there are some prejudices and and persecutions that do do endure as well. Obviously, um, gay people were persecuted under the Nazi regime. How does the picture change in terms of criminalisation and treatment of of gay people in the post war years? And what did you find out about that? That's a really important question. So yes, gay men are affected. Um, Homosexual activity in women is never criminalised. In men it is. There's a law that's existed, had existed in Germany since 1871 and the Nazis kept it in their criminal code and after the war it remained in the German criminal code in West Germany up till 69, in East Germany till 1968. And so after the Nazi regime is defeated, there are still men in prison uh, for consensual sex with other men, and they stay in prison. Um, and that doesn't change till 69. Um, so how political prisoners in East Germany, right up until 1989, could expect to be brutalised, could expect extremely harsh treatment. How the widespread use of solitary confinement, you know, continued and still continues. Men in prison either because they're still serving a sentence or because they've received another sentence on the basis of that criminal record. Um, And a strong sense of of injustice, of course, because this is something that is continuing on from the Nazi period and has not changed. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If we can turn then to the differences under West and East German regimes, how can that sort of be characterised um by its prisoners? Yeah. Well, on, on East Germany legalised homosexuality in 68, but um, the homosexuality laws in East Germany weren't enforced after 57, 1957, so you get far fewer men in prison because they're gay. But it's different in lots of other ways too. Generally, conditions in East Germany are noticeably much worse than in the Federal Republic. It's bad going to prison in the Federal Republic, it's worse going to prison in East Germany. East Germany is a very, very carceral state. Um, 
lots of people went to prison. You could be, you could serve a prison sentence for lots of different crimes. And obviously, one of the things you could serve a prison sentence for was crimes against the state. Um, what outsiders called political prisoners, in fact, what insiders called political prisoners, although East Germany was adamant that there was no such thing as a political prisoner in Germany. But there were crimes against the state. Um, about half of those crimes were what was called Republikflucht, so fleeing the Republic, um, people trying to cross the border. And the question then arises, you know, if you've got this ideal republic, which East Germany believed itself to be, why would people flee? So in 1968, they actually changed the name of that crime um, and it became illegal border crossing. Uh, but still, you know, loads of people in prison for that. And what else is different is that there's a special police force in East Germany for dealing with crimes against the state. So regular criminality uh, is dealt with by a force called the Volkspolizei, the People's Police. Um, but crimes against the state are dealt with by the Ministry for State Security, which we know as the Stasi. Um, and that is a very different experience. Uh, in what sense can we hear a little more on that? Well, if you're arrested by the Stasi, the chances are you won't be told why. Um, withholding information was a really key method of control. Particularly in the early years of the GDR, there were nighttime interrogations. People would be dragged out of bed, taken to an interrogation. There would be beatings. Um, there would be physical torture sometimes. Even later, I mean, it remains a very punitive system. And people in Stasi prisons could be punished for anything or nothing. People would be chained to a concrete floor um, and left there for hours at a time. Sometimes the stories say for days at a time. They might be hung up to dry, which means you get suspended by your arms from a bar so that your feet aren't touching the floor. And there are different kinds of punishment cells. There are dark cells where you can be left in the dark for days at a time. There are standing cells which are just big enough to stand up in but you can't sit down. Um, and awfully, there are water cells. Um, and lots of people telling the story of their prison experience said they didn't believe that these things existed till they saw them. So a water cell is a cell that can have water let into it, and it will rise to about hip height, and then the person is left standing there in the water. Um, and of course, if they have to go to the loo, they're going to be standing in that as well. And that can be left for hours and then the water can be drained, but it can then also be let back in again. So, yeah, these these appalling punishment cells. And then particular animosity among prison staff towards political prisoners, because East Germany pushed a belief system that it was the fault of crimes against the state, of people who committed crimes against the state, that the perfect socialist state hadn't yet emerged. These people were the reason why crime still existed. So when they go into prison, um, they're likely to meet guards who are waiting to beat them up. Much worse conditions than regular prisoners. And there is also, I mean, some great stories of resistance, though. I mean, there, there are these awful stories of what happens. And there are these Fabulous stories of, of fighting back. So in Horneck, for example, Horneck is this massive medieval women's prison, a big fortress in Saxony. And the women who survived that remember their solidarity 
Um, they remember a woman who who actually hanged herself rather than give information against another woman. They remember a guard who got dragged off and beaten up because she'd been harassing disabled prisoners. And they remember one of my favourite stories, if I may, is, is you know when they perform Schiller's Don Carlos. So Don Carlos, one of the kind of famous plays in the German canon, and there's a moment in it, a famous moment, where the Marquis says to the king, sire, give us freedom of thought. And they were forbidden by the prison to perform this line, so they didn't. Instead, everyone in the play froze at that moment and held silence. And apparently there was just tumultuous applause um, because everybody knew what went into that gap. So there are these kind of, you know quite inspiring stories that that come out of the awfulness as well. Yes, powerful moments. Um, so we've covered there the, the severe brutality of, of many East German prisons, but it, we shouldn't paint the picture that a prison in West Germany in a similar period was a, was a walk in the park, was it? No, absolutely not. And in the immediate post-war period, things were very tough, Um, not least because things outside were very tough. So outside you've got food shortages, shortage of fuel. And those shortages are reflected in prison as well. But people outside could grow food, they could scavenge, um, they they could pick up wood. People inside can't do that. So people were dying in prison because they couldn't get enough calories. You know, they they couldn't get enough fuel to keep warm. And Stories of, you know, extreme authoritarianism, of not being allowed to wear gloves when you go for a walk outside. Buckets in the cells, so no toilets. Later that changes uh, and there are toilets, though even now you are lucky to have a cell where your toilet isn't visible to anyone else in the cell and where it's screened off. That's become more normal, but that was a a gradual and slow change. And punishment by solitary confinement, punishment in a punishment cell, being alone for days at a time. You know, these things persist um, and they still persist now. And I guess that feeds in then to that sort of sense of national introspection you mentioned of how far things have come from the 1930s and 40s. Yes, um, And in, you know, both of the Germanys, East Germany and West Germany, joined the UN in 1973, and they both signed up to the Helsinki Accords, where the Helsinki Accords demanded assurances about the observation of human rights. So, you know, things things did change. In 1977, there's a new penal code for the GDR. In 1976, there's one from East Germany. But what people in prison talk about and what perhaps more is more surprising for people outside is how much stayed the same, how much didn't change. Um, so how political prisoners in East Germany right up until 1989 could expect to be brutalised, could expect extremely harsh treatment. How the widespread use of solitary confinement, you know, continued and still continues. And, you know, how there are still stories of beatings by prison officers. You know, this is this is a legitimate system. Things that should not be happening, and one is still hearing stories of them happening, stories of racial abuse in prisons, and stories of medical negligence that sometimes leads to people dying. And you know, even if it doesn't lead to that, leads to pain. You know, there are stories which almost could be comical, but they're not, you know, about toothache. Um, and what it's like to try to go to the dentist 
and not get an appointment and keep trying to go to the dentist and the pain gets worse and worse. Um, and obviously you can only have painkillers if somebody will will give them to you. So what I found, I guess, surprising and I became accustomed to as I did the work, but these stories of, you know, what, what hasn't changed and what's still happening. Mm-hmm. So we have reunification in 1990. How does that change the picture? It's another chance for a new start. So I guess, you know, in German 20th century history, there are these two big moments of 1945 where there's a chance for a new start and then 1989-1990 when there's another chance for a new start. And the question then is out there, you know, was there a new start? Did things change in prisons? And, of course, in the East they did. Um, There was a big amnesty, people who were in prison for political crimes uh, or crimes against the state came out again. Other people who had either a sort of mixed portfolio um, of, you know, criminal activity and crimes against the state stayed in. Um, But then federal German law was enforced then across all of the new states. So everywhere now observed federal German law. Um, And in 2006, there's a complete reform uh, and all of the counties, all of the the states in Germany, the lender, get to regulate their own prison systems. And that has some quite significant effects because every state does it a bit differently. Um, And in general, as you'd expect, the more conservative states are a bit tougher and lean more towards punishment. And the more left liberal states lean towards re-socialisation, rehabilitation as the privilege. But the difference that makes for somebody who goes to prison... so. If your place of residence is registered in Berlin, you'll go to prison in Berlin. And that means you're probably, you, your chances of going to an open prison are quite high. Your chances of getting day release are quite high. Your chances of getting regular visits from your family are quite high. If you go to prison in Bavaria, you're much less likely to be in an open prison because there are fewer. You're much less likely to get day release. Your visits are going to be less frequent. So, you know, the, the really important aspects um, of lived experience are different. Lots of regional differences um, that, that, you know, lead to questions like, you know, is justice now about geography? So we've already touched on it, but if we can um, look at the continuation of prison reform in um, the post-war years, who, who were the leading um, advocates of this idea? Well, there are a few people. I mean, my favourite is probably Birgitta Wolf. Um, Birgitta Wolf is an amazing character. So she was born in Sweden. She was Duchess von Rosen. Um, but she married a German uh, and moved to the Black Forest in 1933. What a year to move to Germany. Um, her aunt was married to Hermann Göring, so married to the man who invented the Gestapo. And once she was in Germany, she actually used that family connection and she used it to as a kind of protection while she was helping people in prison. She advocated for them um, and she took some quite significant risks. Towards the end of the war, she hid three Jewish women in her home. And when the war was over, Wolf came out um, as a prison campaigner. And what made her different from some of the other prison campaigners is that she was constantly in conversation with people in prison. It's remarkable. In the course of her life, she wrote 
and received literally thousands and thousands of letters from people in prison. So her advocacy for reform was based on what she was hearing all the time. Um, but there were other people too. There was the writer Ingeborg Trewitz, um, famous post-war German writer. Uh, and eventually in 1989, after she died, the big literary prize in Germany for people in prison, the Ingeborg Trewitz Prize, was named after her. And there's Gustav Heinemann, um, who was in Adenauer's post-war conservative cabinet, but then later migrated to the Social Democrats. And there's another fascinating character I found is Helga Einzler. Um, Helga Einzler was a lawyer who was banned under the Nazis. She wasn't allowed to practice. And she kind of hid out in Austria in the countryside during the war. And afterwards she came back. Um, and in 1947, she became governor of the women's prison in Frankfurt. Uh, and led this kind of amazing progressive prison that had the first mother and child facilities. So yeah, all these kind of amazing characters emerge in that period. So after everything you've said, um, you've mentioned how holding up this mirror to recent German history, it offers us a really interesting picture of society outside prison as well. What can we learn? What have you learned from this account? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And you know, what happens is that, that, you know, the prison holds the mirror up right back at us. And it's really important to say that Germany is not worse in its treatment of people in prison than the UK or the US. Uh, and in many ways, it's much better. You know, Germany is a less carceral state uh, than we are, for example, holds fewer people in prison. Um, People in prison who are German citizens have the right to vote. In 2014, you know, perhaps amazingly to someone in this country, a prisoner union was founded. And prisoners in Germany now have their own union, which campaigns about rates of pay and is looking into really important questions like pensions. Um, because at the moment, if you come out of prison in your 60s, you don't have a pension because you might have worked in prison for years and years, um, but you won't have made pension contributions. So Germany is... is by no means the worst place in the international context. And still, you know, all of these people in prison who are telling these stories are telling us that Germany is not the country they thought it was, that Germany maybe is not living up to its own post-war narrative looked at from the inside. I think of um, Primo Levi, I guess, who wrote the memoir of Auschwitz. And Concentration camps are not the same as prisons, but Levy tells a really interesting story about a dream that prisoners had in Auschwitz, and many of them had it, about going home and you meet a relative or a loved person and you want to tell them what you've been through, and that person turns away and won't or can't listen to you. And Levy speaks about the incredible pain of that moment. And so I found I needed to learn what I do to incarcerated people, to people in prison when I look away and don't listen. And I think we all need to learn what we do to ourselves when we do that, because in some ways we risk just sleepwalking into authoritarianism if we won't listen to the people who know what it looks like from the inside and who actually know what our societies are already capable of. Um, so learning to listen for everyone's benefit, I'd say. 
And from all the testimony that you looked at for this account, are, are there any particular examples that have, have stayed with you for any reason in particular? Oh, so many. <laughs> so many. So I, I have I have favourites. I guess many stand out in East Germany, Erika Wallach, who was held in solitary confinement for months, and she secretly managed to make a chessboard out of her pocket handkerchief and would play chess with herself for hours. You know, Jan from Thuringia, the farmer who didn't want his his farm to be taken over by the state, so he filled his tractor's tyres with water so that they wouldn't explode if someone shot at them and drove to the border and tried to crash his way um, across the border into the west. Um, And he didn't make it. Um, Yeah, and then I guess for me, because, you know, I also work on literature and writing, the stories of people who write... um, and the stories of people now who are no longer in prison, but on the board um, of judges who judge writing competitions from prison um, and have become writers. You know, those stories show perhaps a better way forward. That was Sarah Colvin. Shadowland, the story of Germany told by its prisoners is published by the University of Chicago Press and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 